Hello, film lovers, and welcome to the Films I Love Most podcast. The Films I Love Most podcast is recorded live with live messaging. So sometimes people do message in with very inappropriate comments. We can't help that. It's just the general public. So if you hear something that is offensive or rude, we try our best to put a stop to it, but it might just sneak through. So I do apologize for that. But anyway, let's move on. Enjoy this episode of the Films I Love Most podcast. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Shock Horror Podcast. Hello. Hello. Yay. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Oh, you sound a little bit distant. A little distant. Okay, let me see what's going on. That's it. Getting louder. Getting louder. Getting louder. Getting louder. Getting louder. Okay. Yeah. Uh, nice and clean. Perfect. Okay, cool. You let me know the second that it is distant, and I will re. I'll walk around in circles as as they used to in the beginning of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trying to get a connection. No, it sounds good. Yep. you sound good to me. Good. How are you? I'm so good. I'm geeking out like nobody's business. Just I've been watching the three Poltergeist films. Uh, I, I think I've watched them three times this week, just going in oh. over and over again for fun because I, I love wow. this franchise. And I cheated. You know, I, I definitely suggested a franchise that I am obsessed with because I wanted to rewatch them again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I watched them as well. Um Interesting. Got a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. Hell of a lot to talk about. So, yeah, welcome. This is a real horror show. Uh, today we're, we're talking about horror movie sequels, a different franchise every week. I don't think that's how it originally started out, was it? I think we were <laughs> going to cover quite a few franchises over each episode, but then it got to the point mm. where last week we were just talking about Halloween. Well, I mean, some of these franchises go on for six movies, so we just can't guarantee we'd fit more than one. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we've chosen the Poltergeist uh, franchise this week, which is really exciting. Uh, Probably one of the scariest movies I remember seeing as a kid. This was a PG-13 movie when it was released. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I I absolutely saw the first Poltergeist uh, the summer of my fifth birthday. Uh, I had some older cousins, and they showed it to me, and I just was obsessed with it uh, since then. I used to play it in my room all by myself, and my mom was like, I'm afraid of you. And uh, <laughs> every year I usually watch them at some point, usually closer to Halloween, but this year, you know, being in quarantine and everything, I've been rewatching a lot of my favorite movies just whenever I feel like it. Because who's stopping me? Exactly. And it's comforting, isn't it? Like when you get to the point where you can sort of rewatch your old movies and just relax. And a friend said to me today that she's finding it very difficult to, to watch anything that is uh, realistic. You can only watch sort of magical 
like uh, mm-hmm. horror movies or superhero movies because watching anything realistic at the moment uh, during the pandemic says just to mm-hmm. her. So she is, oh. um, yeah, just watching things like this, which is great. Exactly. I mean, I totally understand that because I feel like, you know, right now we're all sort of like watching that show 24-7. Let's escape. Let's actually use movies for what they first came around to do, which was help us escape how horrible real life was. Yeah, exactly. Poltergeist, I mean, Poltergeist certainly does um, something like that. <laughs> Definitely an escape mm. of some kind. Um, That's yeah, true. What's your That's first, true. What's your first memories of the Poltergeist franchise? I mean, my first memories and the things that always pull me back to this franchise is the practical effects. I just remember watching them happen. And then when I was a kid and wanting to play, you know, scenes from the movie that I like had the toys and I could do these things with the toys to make it feel even more real when I played with it. And I just love that, you know, this sort of whole franchise gets to exist where like there's only minimal CG and we all just accept it because we know it was so fresh when they were doing it. But the practical stuff, my first memory is always, you know, that tennis ball covered in goo and, you know, all the Mm -hmm. different things that I used to put on tennis balls in my garage growing up, getting so much trouble because I'm destroying the tennis balls. But I was trying to play guys. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, I think for me, it was that scene when he is looking in the mirror and his face starts falling apart. That, for me, is like the memory that I have. Absolutely the living for Jesus out. Oh, so good. And absolutely uh, an image or <clears throat> a type of scare that I think continues on in horror ever since. I'm, I'm sure it showed up in some way prior, but I just feel like I agree. Though it is, it really feels, I don't know, it looks so good, even though I know it's not real as an adult. And I do remember, you know, looking in the mirror, uh, something I always do is try to smile just in case there's anything scary in that mirror. And I think yeah. Poltergeist is to blame for that. <laughs> yeah. That scene starts off so normal, you know, and it is it is brutal. Like some of the, the, the effects, you've got the chicken leg on the counter that starts to sort of turn in on itself oh. and spurt out. Oh, just absolutely uh, horrific. And then you have, mm-hmm. yeah, and then you have the scene where um, he walks to the mirror, takes his glasses off looking, and then there's that sort of buzz, bright light. Oh, that sound effect used to scare me as well, like the buzzing of the light coming on, and then he just starts mm-hmm. to peel his face away. Oh my God, terrifying. It's Absolutely terrifying. So true. Yeah, the, the sound yeah. is another big part of why it's so scary is because they are really thinking about all of the stuff that can kind of get your skin to crawl and then they can do some sort of creative imagery with it. But the sound is what makes the first one so scary to me because as the franchise goes on and we'll talk more about, they get a, they still have cool practical effects, but they get a little bit more campy and like less personal or something. And Mm -hmm. in that first one, there's just so many really subtle details because it's nice and contained kind of like in that house. You know what I mean? Yeah. Very claustrophobic. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some great uh, location sequences. Don't get me wrong. Like the 
the cemetery and you know the street itself is very ominous isn't it it's very like nightmare mm-hmm. in elm street do you know what i mean you've got the the neighborhood and then you've got the house stands out mm. like a sore thumb you know that where everything and, bad is happening oh so true and i think what's kind of cool about poltergeist too is or the Pol- poltergeist also i mean before we move to poltergeist too um <laughs> is when that movie was coming out you know like in america we were doing that thing of like building all those cul-de-sacs again very much like we had done in the 50s except we were about to hit another economic downturn over here where people were going to lose everything so there's this interesting thing about how that family is alone in this nice luxury neighborhood in some way like they're moving into the new space there's only like a few neighbors so much of it is still very empty and that was like a very real story in the 80s in a lot of these neighborhoods. So I just remember being like, oh, this is like trying to talk about how weird it was uh, to be a family in the 80s. You know, ghosts or no mm. ghosts, it wasn't easy and the ghosts don't make it any easier. Absolutely. I've, I've done a lot of research, especially on the first film, to come up with some interesting trivia and facts. But firstly, let's just let's just talk about like the creative team behind uh, Poltergeist. So, I mean, the most standout is obviously Steven Spielberg, you know, a genre that he's not known for at all, you know, the horror genre. So what do you mm-hmm. think um, attracted Spielberg to the horror genre, especially at this time in his career? I mean, I think that in his, I think in his mind, he saw himself as someone who was a horror director. Like he tried to make Jaws and he wanted it to be really scary, which it totally is. Um, You know, uh, um, I can't think of it. The third kind one, Close Encounters. I'm like, I can't think of the the whole title, but you know, he's making (laughs) all of these movies that could be horror movies, but because he just has this uh, more animated I guess like creative style, it they end up being closer to sort of like teen movies or like pre-teen movies as opposed to you know the the real horror he's going for. So I feel like when he teams up, you know, with the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like it's a no-brainer that they're gonna nail the perfect center of being able to have kids and kids things be part of what scares you, but finding that darker turn or that scarier edge. Sure, and I think um, you know Spielberg wanted to get involved with Toby Hooper or Toby Hooper because um, of his work on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and you know it, it's a bit of an odd uh, concept of bringing someone who made a movie that was so you know hard hitting and shocking mm. and and visual and horrific to bring mm-hmm. him into like Spielberg Spielberg's world, which is almost Yes, it is scary. Yes, it is, you know, disturbing in some ways. But also, it's mm-hmm. a little bit family-friendly. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you think about yes. Jaws... I mean, if you think about Jaws and Poltergeist, there's sort of something very similar about like, a family unit that is being invaded by an outside force. In Poltergeist, it's mm-hmm. the ghosts. In uh, Jaws, it's the shark. But um, to bring someone who is, you know, re- known for being so visually brutal... I think it was a very mm-hmm. brave decision by um, Spielberg. So here's my question. Do you think, from watching the film, from your own personal opinion, do you think that Spielberg mm-hmm. may have had to rope back Toe Pooper at any point? Because I can imagine that if Toe 
Toby Hooper was allowed to just go full force with this thing, I can imagine that it would come out a lot more brutal than it actually mm. is. But do you think that there was... Do you think Spielberg put any limits on on Toby Hooper's um, like visual style and direction? I think how I actually really like to look at it is I like to look at it as Spielberg trying his best to help a new filmmaker he thinks is really good connect into the studio system in order to get the kind of money he wants so he can make his movies. Because at the time in like the 70s, you know, Spielberg and like the Palma and Scorsese, they were all like friends with each other and trying to support each other's careers and all kind of respected that they were different filmmakers, but that they needed studios to make money. And so I, I feel oh. like it's this wonderful thing where he was trying to be like, even though what you do is crazy brutal and it's really far away from what I do, even I have to give it up for how good it is. And, you know, here's the best I can do to try to connect you to these things and let's see, you know, like what we can do. But there's there's no way that he didn't have to hold him back. Like that scene in the mirror is probably something that would have been even worse. And it's already pretty visceral, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally, that was the thing I was I, thinking I, of. I agree. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of... Uh, remember, Toby Hooper also directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which I think is probably... I mean, we'll, we'll do Texas Chainsaw Massacre at some point, but I'm just I'm just yeah, uh, using it as examples. Texas Chainsaw Massacre mm-hmm. 2 is very, very violent. Very, very gruesome. Like, the gore Ugh. in that film um, even, like, turned my stomach. I, I even mm-hmm. had to look away, and I've seen a lot of horror movies. So, um, <laughs> to... to just have that translated into like a Hollywood sort of mainstream movie would have been quite mm-hmm. interesting, but I do watch that and do think that he was holding back slightly on some of the scenes. He had to. Yeah, I agree because you're right. You know, like he, his own vision on his own is much more gruesome. It is darker. It's a different palette. And I think that's why I like the Poltergeist franchise so much. The originals, because that remake is almost sort of saying like, let's take the darker turn that like, could have happened if Spielberg wasn't a part of this and that like takes away mm. my desire to connect to the family like there's something really nice about how the color palette of all three of these movies is nowhere near as dark as you know each of these people is feeling about what's happening right like they're in the grave situation as the audience we can see them portraying that you don't have to make it so that I can barely see people's faces when it's the daytime and every day is gray so that I'm scared <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, totally. And I think that's the genius of the very first Poltergeist, that a lot of the stuff does happen sort of during the day to begin with. I mean, it does go mm-hmm. into the night, and there is some great effects on the uh, the weather, so to speak. But, uh, yeah, I think <laughs> like the, the opening sequences, you know, with the builders outside coming in, drinking coffee mm-hmm. and flirting with the daughter. And, you know what I mean? All those scenes really build this this world that you wouldn't necessarily expect Toby Hooper to be involved in that world building. You can definitely see Spielberg's Mm -hmm. influence more in those sequences. Yes, I totally agree. And I I think that that is, you know, why it's so interesting to always return to the original and talk about it in this kind of way, because it is one of those things that has a strange history where, you know, when it came out and people liked it, they were like, oh, it's a Spielberg movie. Like, that guy who directed it, he's not even a good director. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, people immediately tried to 
take away from whatever Toby Hooper did. And I, I don't know what we're supposed to do about it because I do agree, like, it's very clear that Spielberg was heavily trying to help him meet that middle ground and make it something that people could consume because I think that that's sort of the, the hard part about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies is that not everybody can consume it. It's pretty intense. And if you're going to make it in this biz, kid, everybody's got to be able to consume your work and they got to be able to do it over and over again. And at the very least, Spielberg gave him one of those. I mean, I can yeah, no, Chainsaw I pretty much every year, but it's hard. I don't really invite other people to join it because it's dark. <laughs> no, 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 I agree. I mean, Toby Hooper, um, you know, went on to make a variety of different um, movies, some more mm-hmm. along the tone of Poltergeist, especially his canon movie, which I think is called Invaders from Mars or something along that along those lines that he was supposed uh-huh. to deliver for canon. But at the same time, I don't think Cannon were very pleased with the job that he did. I think by that time, he sort of knew what worked in studios and that all out gore. And, you know, I think mm-hmm. he felt alienated people. So therefore didn't bring the audiences <laughs> in. So I think Poltergeist changed Toby Hooper also. Like, mm-hmm. you know, his perspective on um, how to make a film for the most broadest audience, but still make a genre yeah. that he loves. Um, right. Yeah. Right. So I think that I think the Poltergeist definitely was the turning point for him. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I feel like I like that. I like that at that time in uh, like American cinema that that this group of directors was much less competitive in the ways that today I feel like people don't really collaborate or work to help each other get their work going. And I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. You know, this strange collaboration could take place at all because Spielberg is just not the kind of director who's like oh I see your work it's not what I do so I don't like it and I feel like that's much more common today where directors are really like my vision only no collaboration needed yeah exactly I feel like um I feel like nowadays first-time horror directors really go for it you know I mean we have um Oh, goodness me, what's his name? He directed, like, Hereditary and then Midsummer. You know, a very yes, visionary um, director. I want to call him... I want to call him the wrong name right now. Ari Aster. Ari Aster. Ari Aster, that that's it. You know, his vision <laughs> okay. is... Yeah, he, yeah, Ari Aster, yeah, his vision is so strong. Do you know what I mean? And I think mm-hmm. that he's one of those directors, very rarely does a direct... I think, you know, sometimes it goes right, sometimes it goes wrong. But I think with Ari Aster, mm-hmm. he's got such a strong vision and the studios sort of let him get away or let him get on with what he mm-hmm. wants to do. do you know what I mean, I can't imagine that there is much uh, studio interference in his project because he's very clear to what he wants to do. Um, and I think that Toe Pooper had that at the beginning with Texas Chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw 2. Um, mm-hmm. Ari Aster going into a more mainstream studio like, do you, um, I mean, that would have, you know, the executives getting actively involved in his movies, I don't think would work as well. I don't think Jordan mm-hmm. Peele would like that very much. Um, nope. And I just get I just get a feeling that Toby Hooper hit it, hit it right, making a big budget film, keeping through to his style. But I think that all has to do with the fact that him and Spielberg were buddies and they were sort of able to guide each other through that process. Yes. Exactly. 
that's what I mean, you know, that there's something really special about filmmakers loving film enough to not try to beat each other, but instead try to help each other. And I do see uh, directors like Ari Aster and Robert Eggers as kind of like a version of what these types of filmmakers are. And I wonder what it would look like if they, in a more intense way, were trying to help each other get closer to the center. Because, you know, they still make particular movies that like, I've, I've recommended to several people who have been very angry with me after <laughs> because, you know, they were not ready for what was going to happen, uh, given that there are still some huge actors in these films. And that's kind of what's great about Poltergeist, too, is that, like, uh, there are great actors in this movie, huge famous people at the time. And it's insane that they're here and totally authentically portraying this kind of story. And that's got to be a testament to sort of like what Toby Hooper can do too, is bring these people no, to the ground, even though, even though what they're experiencing is insane. Yeah, absolutely. Did you know that um, Drew Barrymore was originally going to play Carol Ann, but oh um, Spielberg wanted, yeah, Spielberg wanted someone more angelic to play the role, um, but it was Barrymore's audition for poltergeist that landed mm-hmm. her the part of Gertie and E.T. Ama- that's that's so amazing because I there's something really interesting too about how like Loki Spielberg's is tricking you with stakes. He's picking these very sweet yeah. looking children who are so cute that they lull you into feeling comforted but what he's actually doing is raising the stakes to a level where like if those kids get hurt you're going to be devastated. And, you know, that's not really part of, you know, what a lot of other horror directors need to do. But I feel like through time, they start doing it more. And, you know, people like Carol Ann are are perfect examples, little characters like that. And there's something cool about Spielberg sort of picking out little blonde girls and not just making them only dolls, but making her like a central piece of what's happening here. And she she looks like this harmless child this little doll that she's actually like a very serious piece of this family and piece of this world oh absolutely so there was um during the the filming of poltergeist there was um there was only one scene that really scared uh heather o'rourke to the point where they had to stop filming and it was the scene Mm -hmm. when she's holding onto that headboard and the wind machine Mm -hmm. is blowing all the toys into the closet behind her apparently the young Mm -hmm. actress uh, like she fell apart during filming that scene and uh, oh. Steven Spielberg uh, stepped, stopped everything, stepped into the scene, took her in his arms and said that she wouldn't have to do the scene again. Mm-hmm. So you can see, like, even though, you know, I, I can imagine that it, it, if you made a film like Poltergeist today with such a young actress, there'll be so much more in place to protect her. There'll be rules and mm-hmm. regulations. She probably wouldn't be able to work. Um, like over a certain amount of hours. I doubt that back then they were really abiding by those rules. Um, nope. But, you know, so there would have been so much that would have changed um, if that film was being made today. But the fact that obviously Spielberg had a lot of care, had a lot of protection around those young actors. I mean, we saw it, you know, if you watch any documentary about E.T., they all talk mm-hmm. about how Spielberg was this warm sort of, you know, like fatherly uncle figure like protecting them and looking out for them and making sure that they were comfortable with um what they were doing so it's interesting to see someone so young Mm -hmm. obviously obviously talented 
but just so comfortable to be able to do what she's doing. And also, she's obviously yes. she's not playing up against her real parents. But I think that that is one of the most remarkable thing about the film is mm-hmm. um, Heather O'Rourke's relationship with uh, Craig T. Nielsen and, uh, and Joe yep. Beth Williams, who play Diane and Steve. You know, like y- you would actually believe that they were like her parents. There's something really magical between the connection between them, and also with the other mm-hmm. kids. But I think not so much. But with Carol Ann, my goodness, that, that it, it's like watching a real-life daughter-mother-father relationship. Mm-hmm. Yes. So realistic. So true. Well, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, that's another piece of what Spielberg has to offer and maybe is trying to help give as another skill is this idea of, like, what, what it takes to actually provide authenticity, safety for your actors, like a way that allows them to feel like they can bring their personal emotional space here. and We will protect it. We won't exploit it. We won't shame it or use it the wrong way. And that's like really just not the culture and on anybody else's set. And so it's a real testament mm. to kind of how what he really wants is for you to be so comfortable so that you're not actually acting. You're just being and I'll pick that up. And then I'll keep you safe. So that thing I picked up, a terrible experience we all just had, you know what, it's okay now. And that's just like not really how yeah. people considered making movies, especially with child actors before that. Like, yeah, before him, most uh, directors were really cold to their child actors. And lots of child actors had terrible experiences. And many mm-hmm. of the ones Spielberg worked with, you know, had had difficult parents who weren't that great. And so... I think he was trying to recognize that like what I'm asking is really challenging and I had a hard childhood and if there's anything I can do to stop any other kid from having a hard childhood, I'm going to try to do it. And he did a good job yeah. for the most part when he had, when he had access to those, to helping those kids make a movie. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree. They're so very naturalistic. It's almost like, um, he rolled the cameras, didn't tell the kids that the cameras were rolling, and just said, we're mm-hmm. going to play act. We're just going to, you know, just act and play and not really, mm-hmm. you know. I, I think that's, that's the way that I look at that those scenes, especially the scenes with, uh, you know, at breakfast. They're so natural, mm-hmm. so improvised. It's almost like, you know, that they are, you're actually watching in on a real family in the morning. So I do, I do believe that there was a lot of improvisation, a lot of times mm-hmm. when, like the character, the cameras weren't necessarily known to be running, like the kids didn't know that. You know, there's a lot of acting mm-hmm. play between the actors. But yeah, you can definitely see that in the uh, in the final uh, film. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and I think, yeah, that that's something that, like, as the franchise goes on, is is an important piece because I think what why I really like do like the Poltergeist two sequel is because everybody returns and they're still doing what they need to to keep that family dynamic in a way that makes sense, right? Like they're, they're doing exactly what happens after uh, a big tragic event takes place in a family and, you know, bringing some of the same practical fits with them, which is pretty cool. But the relationship between Carol Ann and Joe Beth and Craig T. Nelson in the second one is even more developed. You know, there are... There are these moments where, you know, as a couple, they're talking about how hard it is to be Carol Ann's parents. And, you know, that's about, you know, 
Craig T. Nelson being possessed and trying to isolate Carol Ann. But it's just amazing that like the relationship is also a big part of what's happening here. Even though you're thinking, oh, that's just the dad and the mom. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? No, no, I totally get what you mean. Totally get that. So, um, at its core, Poltergeist is a very traditional ghost story. You know, you have, mm-hmm. um, you know, a graveyard that has been moved. Houses have been built on the uh, on the grave site, and everyone thinks, "Oh, it's okay. We've moved the grave. We've moved the cemetery, <laughs> but they only moved the headstones." You only move the head down. So, um, yeah, and then obviously you get the haunted house, um, and then that's expanded on in Poltergeist 2, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, mm-hmm. So, just some interesting facts. I mean, um, I was going to just say some things about the, the filming of Poltergeist, especially that scene in the uh, swimming pool. So, Joe Beth Williams was really yes. hesitant about getting in that swimming pool because um, she was scared because of all the electrical equipment that was around. Fair. She put one mm-hmm. slip. All it took was someone to drop a boom mic, and that would be it. They'd be dead. So, um, <laughs> Very so, true. So in order Good to, call. like, yeah, so in order to comfort her, Steven Spielberg got in the pool with her and was uh, <laughs> was in that pool through that whole sequence. And Spielberg told, like, you know, like, told her that uh, now if a light falls in, we're, we're both going to fry. That's what he said to her. Exactly. And um, yeah, and it worked. She got in the pool. She did the scenes. But what she didn't realize was that that pool was filled with real skeletons. Oh, my gosh. That's right. They were like cadaver skeletons, right? Yes. They were real skeletons. They were actually like real people. <gasps> How grim was that? Can you imagine? No wonder they didn't I mean, tell her. Be... Yeah, that that had to have been a detail that you know Toby Hooper was like, if I I have to have real dead bodies, man. And Spielberg was like, all right, cool. Don't tell Joe Beth. <laughs> like, yeah, well, so again, it harks back to been the his... craziest thing. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, well, it, I was gonna say again, it harks back to his Texas Chainsaw Massacre days, where mm-hmm. he was using real body parts. You know, in the in the um the documentary, the making of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. The cast talk about the smell, you know, the stench, the stench of the set because he was real <clears> using <throat> real life, like bones, real life, um, you know, sort of organs and stuff from Organ, uh, yeah. animals from the abattoir. He used to go down to the abattoir every day and pick up like guts and God knows what from Ooh. there. And, and and they're filming in like Texas heat in the summer, you know. So I think that. Having that experience, Toby Cooper, I don't think had many limits from that moment onwards. <laughs> right, I was going to so, say definitely a different kind of boundaried guy than Mr. Spielberg. But also, there's something interesting about you know making a movie that way and making a movie the way Spielberg does. Right, like Spielberg also wants you to have a very real experience. He just wants it to be something that's really safe, so he can control it. And he wants to be able to control it in a way where he just tells you what he wants and you give it to him. Whereas maybe in that whole situation where you're filming Texas Chainsaw with like all of this very real stuff and nobody's doing anything about it or really talking about it, it's just happening now. That gives you a different kind of control. 
where like you've, you're now putting these people on edge in the way you want them to be on camera, but you're not really telling them that that's something that like you appreciate. You're just sort of saying action. So it's yeah. kind of interesting if you think yeah, about no, you know, two ways of making a movie. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, the, the thing I love about Poltergeist, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, is the mm-hmm. story structure. Mm-hmm. The structure of the story is so great because it's, I think it's probably one of the first films, um, especially like in the 80s or in, of the horror genre, that did that mm-hmm. whole thing of, you know, having, setting up your family, setting up your characters, then hitting them with a scenario which is, you know, horrific, which you've got, um, you know, the sort of the ghost starting to appear, the moving of the objects mm-hmm. and everything, and then Carol Ann mm-hmm. disappears. And then you have the aftermath of that, of the family, you know, reaching out for help. And you Mm -hmm. get all of that, sort of the investigators coming. And then you get the conclusion, which is um, the investigators, you know, um, oh, what's the, I can't remember the character's name now. Oh, goodness. I've not got it. Hang on. Character's name, uh, the the exorcist character. Uh, Zelda. Uh, Right? Yeah, Zelda, yes. Zelda, yeah. Is that her real name, though? Uh, Tangina. Or no, that's probably Tangina. 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 Yeah, Tangina, that's right. That's Tangina, right. yeah. Tangina. Every time I hear that name, I die with laughter because it sounds yeah. like a joke. I can't believe that's yeah. her name. <laughs> but Tangina comes in, does the whole thing. You know, they get Carolan back. It's the end. You know, like in any other movie mm-hmm. of that of that era, that would have been it. Do you know what I mean? The, they would have walked off into the sunset. That would be great. Mm-hmm. But Holtergeist mm-hmm. has got just got this fantastic, like, final act that I think, uh, and, and you know, I, I can imagine if you were a cinema goer watching that film for mm-hmm. the first time, that final act, I can imagine, was really shocking. Because it, I, I remember watching it for the first time, probably in the early 2000s, and being really shocked by that and had never really had seen that before. You know, where you mm-hmm. think that everything is fine and then boom, you get this really sort of violent, fast-paced, epic final act. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the oh. guy pulls it off like a magic trick. But oh, also absolutely. brutal. Oh, well, brutal because it is nonstop and it really has you, you know, by the, the shirt, you know, it's like got you and it's just dragging you through and there's no stopping and you don't, you, you had just been lulled, so it is so jarring. But I agree, like, yeah. that's what's brilliant about it to me, too, is I like that they sort of say, look, there are consequences that happen in a family, and there's what a family is going through. But then there's, like, a greater narrative that that family could have no idea they walked into, and it's too late because, in a way, they enabled it. So I really love the metaphor that they're going for of, like, removed the headstones and totally ignored the humans. And that's really has to do a lot with, like, you know, another piece of our American past that we love to ignore that time that we totally committed genocide over here and got rid of a lot of the native folks. Yeah. Mm, at least this movie, at least this movie is sort of saying, like, here is this ideal white family that exactly represents what happened when white folks came to the United States or I guess to the America. Um, or yeah. whatever it really would have been called, whatever it would have been. Uh, <laughs> And I like that in a sense, they're sort of saying the things that destroy this family on the surface could be this, but there's a real dark past here, which makes it easy for families like this to 
come in contact with this kind of evil. They're born out of that evil in some way. Yeah, absolutely. No, I totally get that because when you've got the, um, you know, I I always feel it's quite um, telling that in that Mm -hmm. final act as well, you've got literally mother and daughter like together, you know, like the men have gone, you know, they're not involved in this. And then suddenly Mm -hmm. you've got a a woman in a very vulnerable position. Well, it's a vulnerable position for anybody, but in this film, it happens to be a woman who is uh, mm-hmm. taking a bath. You've got the daughter playing. I mean, why on God's earth they would like even let that daughter out of their sight in that house after what happened? I've got no idea. No idea. Yes. But, um, yes, I always got, think about that. And then you've got uh, the appearance of... Um, oh, there's a great sequence, is it, where she gets electrocuted? She gets electrocuted by the hairdryer? Is it the hairdryer mm. that electrocutes her? I think so. Great I think sequence. that's right. Yeah, the build-up to that is brilliant. And then you have the weird chicken skeleton ghost thing that appears, which I think is an amazing design. Um, oh, and so then you good. have the tombstones, or the coffins bursting out of the ground. It's what yep. nightmares are made of. <laughs> I mean, Isn't it truly it? is. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is that is what... Uh, I, I appreciate about it because every time I watched it, I always was like, what is wrong with them that once this is over, they're not like, we should probably at the very least, like, get out of here. Let's get the house clean. Let's, you know, reset. Let's go do some self-care. But they're like, let's just act like nothing happened. Let's just 100% yeah. believe it's over <laughs> and pretend like nothing happened, which is, well, sort of, I think, why down. the... Right. I think it's why the third act has to happen, because you can't ignore what happens in your family. That is a problem. So if you want to try to act like nothing happened and sweep something under the rug, that's what started this thing in the first place. So out from under the rug is coming the coffin. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, it's funny. Um, I I do love that final sequence. I think it is like literally the cherry on the top for um, for an, an excellent movie. Also, I think that Poltergeist is one of the um, reasons for um, people to be scared of clowns. Like, a lot of people that I say uh, that are scared of clowns, I say, why are you mm-hmm. scared of clowns? Like, oh, I watched uh, Poltergeist when I was a kid. They always had that bit that refers back yep. to when uh, Robbie is attacked by the clown doll. That is the moment mm-hmm. that apparently caused a lot of people to to get a fear of clowns which I think I is mean, great honestly yeah I think that's great too and I agree that that's the only time I've ever been afraid of a clown because ultimately like I'm not really scared of clowns but that clown doll and how it like is smiling and never uh like it, it, it it's all practical when it when its face changes and how unique the design of of this character that is not a person um but is a clown doll is just the perfect amount of scare um, because I agree that like you know people are afraid of clowns if they're going to be afraid but if you weren't before you'll definitely be creeped out by that kind of clown I definitely think that is the inclusion of um, Spielberg that whole clown bit definitely mm-hmm. uh, yeah. because yeah, he the... does like his suddenly he does like his toys and his cuddly toys you know with the uh, <laughs> um, E.T. and um, uh, 
close encounters of the third kind, you know, he does like to make sort of inanimate objects scary. So I can definitely mm-hmm. see that mm-hmm. that was probably Spielberg's uh, like little touch that to make that clown uh, scary and put it into into the mix. I quite like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I feel like they do try to figure out to the nuance of things uh, like of the fears that they can amplify for each family member, you know, and he had already built a base fear around that doll, felt creeped out by it. And so it made perfect sense you know, that the ghost would animate it. And so I like that, even though the story, again, is kind of about the family getting Carol Ann back, that, like, the brother doesn't get slept on. You know, like, the ghost is still looking at him and thinking about him, too. He's not just there, you know? Yeah. And why the hell would, I mean, if that was me, I would have just said, Mom, Dad, look, that doll in my room is terrifying. I want it out. I want it to go, please. I don't want that there anymore. Yep. That's really scary. Why is that even in my room? But um, I mean, obviously, he didn't, it's, it's, he didn't want to hurt any feelings. <laughs> right, right. It's got to be something where he was trying to prove he wasn't scared of it. But like, maybe it's just time to go ahead and acknowledge you're scared of it and get that thing out of here because now it's attacking you, and it's too late. And also, I'd just like to say that um, his room is kitted out, as it would be in that era in Star Wars, uh, which is a lovely nod from uh, Spielberg to his good old friend. George Lucas yep. at the time, because obviously they were Another about member. to go. Yeah, they were about to go jump head first into the production of uh, Indiana Jones very shortly after this. So, um, so a little glad. nod to his mate, which I thought was lovely. Um, mm-hmm. I think we need to talk about uh, Dominic Dunn. Who probably, you know, when you think about the uh, Poltergeist, her character of uh, is it uh, Dana is probably the one uh-huh. that you forget. Because she does like leave for a huge chunk of the uh, of the story. She only really sort of comes comes back at the end and you know and screams, "What's happening?" So um, good. Yeah, and uh, I, you know, I the like reason... the. Go ahead, go, go ahead. On. I was going to say, I was I just going to um... say. <laughs> you, you go. go. You go. All right. Um, I was going to say, I like the addition of sort of that older kid, because that older kid and whether or not that kid hangs around or goes out tells you a lot about what the family needs or wants. And, you know, like the older brother in E.T., he hangs around a lot. He's older and he could be out with his buddies way more, but he hangs around a lot because his mom needs him. And there's something interesting about how the older kid here is sort of like, ugh, my parents are like kind of perfect or whatever. I'm out of here. And then when she comes home, expecting everything to be perfectly fine, because that's why she's able to safely leave. <laughs> what is happening? Yeah. Everything's falling apart. <laughs> yeah, what I find interesting in doing some research on her character, which I just had up and has just, I've just lost it. Uh, bear with me, because I wrote this down. Um, no problem. Is that, um, bear with me. So when Steve tells um, the... Uh, the ghost hunter woman about the family members ages Mm -hmm. he says that Dana is the oldest daughter she's 16 and that his wife Mm -hmm. Diane is 32 so viewers may interpret that to mean that Diane was 16 when she gave birth Mm -hmm. to Dana Mm -hmm. however in the novelization of the film it clarifies that Diane is Steve's second wife and that Dana is actually Diane's stepdaughter 
So that's in the novelization. Ooh, I'll have to pay attention to that because that actually makes a lot of sense to the point of like how she's, you know, what uh, Joe Beth and Caroline have together is so tight and how, you know, Dana could just be out of the house, like doing whatever she wants. That That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I thought that was cool. great. A nice that little, is a cool uh, little, little nugget, nugget for you. Um, <laughs> Dominic Dunn, unfortunately, the reason why she wasn't in Post um, Guys 2 was because unfortunately the actress um, was murdered. Yeah, by her yeah. ex-boyfriend who, her you know, pursued... Yeah, murdered her and then only got, I think, six and a half years in jail or something. Like, he mm-hmm. got uh, whatever the thing, voluntary manslaughter or something. Like, not cool. And definitely a, a cue to another one of the wonderful quirks of America. It's total terrible justice system and lack of support for ladies. Um, yeah. Total bummer. And it is awkward uh, because they don't even really talk about her in the sequel. Like, they kind of act as though she's just straight up not there. And that is weird. But I guess, like, what are you supposed... What do you do? Do you just, like, recast? Like, is it more respectful yeah. to have let her go off and sort of hope that we assume, yeah, that if she's not there, she's just living her life? Yeah. She's actually buried in the same cemetery as Heather O'Rourke. Uh, oh Dominic yeah, Dunn. yeah. They're buried in the same Good. cemetery in uh, Westwood Memorial Park in Los Angeles. Nice. I've driven past it before, but I never went in because even though there's cool celebs buried in there, I feel like that's not very nice. Like they're no. sleeping, you know. <laughs> yeah, sleep. sure. No, I get that. I get that definitely. Damn. So, um, well, I mean, there's. Something kind of nice about that, though, you know, they sort of played family members on screen, and they both died very young. You know, where their family members probably can't be buried anywhere near them, so maybe that's nice to rest together yeah. on the poltergeist other side. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, um, it's very sad that obviously they didn't come back, and um, you know, it's you know just a very strange circumstance. Which adds, obviously, to the whole thing about the curse of uh, mm-hmm. Poltergeist, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later when we get to Poltergeist 3, um, which mm-hmm. we're going to move on to Poltergeist 2, uh, which is, um, you know, like, yeah. I know that you've said that, I think you've already laid your feelings down on the table about Poltergeist 2. I'm sort of on the fence with it. So uh, what's your earliest memories of Poltergeist 2? I mean, I absolutely had nightmares about when the worm, the tequila worm, when he spits it up and it turns into like the man and it's the preacher, but it's the skeletal structure and it's fucking crawling around on the floor. And like, it still scares me. And as a child, it was so bad that my mom was like, maybe you can't watch these scary movies anymore. And, you know, when she said that, I was like, no, absolutely not. I'm not afraid of them. And then I just had to hide when I was having nightmares and pretend like I had real sweet dreams so I didn't have to lose the movies. But that thing, that is my earliest memory. So horrifying. Yeah, I mean, there's, for me, like, I know we were saying about having sort of the same team back again. I I think you can definitely see the, the, uh, the difference or the lack of 
uh, having Toby Hooper and Spielberg involved. I mean, it's great. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I love it that they brought all the cast back. I think that was great that they managed to get them. Um, mm-hmm. But there is something. It's a very, very strange film because it jumps very much within different genres. Uh, you mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of the stuff of the um, of the Native Americans, uh, yeah. which is, you know, and I, I hate to say it, but very complex and, and mm-hmm. convoluted and in sometimes just damn right confusing. Um, a little bit half-assed, I'd say. Yeah, half-assed. But I think the thing, and this is one of those, um, you know, with Jaws, uh, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, everyone says, oh, that's from Jaws. And you say, well, no, actually, <laughs> think about it. That is from Jaws 2. Because just, mm-hmm. just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, if you're being pedantic, which I am when it comes to film quotes, but um, um, if, you, <laughs> if you say poltergeist, usually the first thing that someone will say, oh, my God, that scary old man, God is ill, he's holy temple, is terrifying. But you don't, but people don't realise that that guy didn't turn up to poltergeist too. Very Played true. with great, um, I mean, still terrifying. That guy, oh. I think that guy was, was wrong in real life, surely. <laughs> he can't yes, like something, that not be... No, something was wrong with his health. Seriously, I totally agree. And yeah, he's yeah. my second uh, like scare where, you know, like just anytime. Uh, oh, God, I'm rewatching this sequel right now that the, the skeletal creature has just appeared and it's horrifying me. Um, <laughs> uh, he yeah, like when I was a kid, I used to be really scared to ever lose my mom just because of the mall scene. You know, when he, like, comes up to Caroline at the mall and he's saying all that creepy shit to a kid, just so messed up. And mm. it makes sense that it sticks out to people because I think in the first one, it's a little bit more your imagination adding on top of the the effects or the voices or the little practical things. And in this one, there's, like, an embodied force. And I feel like that always scares people. Yeah. Well, it's... Uh, well, um... How, uh, Heather O'Rourke was so scared of um, Julian Beck, who played Reverend Kane, that the first time <laughs> she saw him on set, she burst into tears. What did Talk she know that we don't? the poor girl. <laughs> it's My true. Goodness. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like in an attempt to try to capture the same magic, you know, to hope that they could do something to connect they maybe tried to go too hard in some areas and not hard enough in in others. And I think that's why my favorite part of these movies really are Craig T. Nelson, Joe Beth and Heather O'Rourke, like doing their best to try to make all of this stuff be real. And it does look like they're much more horrified. Like Joe, I'm really worried for Joe Beth Williams mental health after this film, because of how hard she goes in it. And Craig T. as well. Like, really digging into, I don't know, uh, some alcoholism issues that can come with trauma and uh, a little bit of domestic violence. Like, it, they they go to places that the first one implies are possible here. Could happen here if this family doesn't love each other. The second one, they're like, here they are. This family's been through it, and now they're not doing good enough, and so more for them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? What? What do you think of the whole um, plot line that 
um, below or underneath the house was uh, something even darker. Do, do you buy into that? The, Honestly, they, I, I... Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, they sort of jettisoned the whole concept that it was because of the moved graveyard that this sort of mm-hmm. thing was happening. And then they brought in that actually underneath their house was a dead cult. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, to me, that's another, you know, telltale move that this movie was made in the 80s because there's something to do with the occult must be present. You know, there must be some sort of cult going on here. And so I uh-huh. don't love, you know, the other side being something that they couldn't have just spent a little bit more time trying to connect because, like, the movement of the graves over a graveyard with a deranged creature who killed everybody. I'm not sure why we needed to make it the separate thing when it was, it could have very well just existed within that space, right? Like he, that same space where they moved the graves, uh, you know, he was a creature of, and he'd, he'd also been killing some of them, right? Like just fill the story out with the preacher. If you must have a creepy preacher, and it's really just got to be like the 80s because, you know, in the 80s, so many people were joining cults and drinking Kool-Aid and shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, I, I think they they obviously found like another area of story that they wanted to tell, like a cult story, mm-hmm. you know, and sort of shoehorned, I think is the word that I would use, into the, into the poltergeist sort of franchise. I mean, it works well. Like, why couldn't we have, like, Kane as, you know, one of the bodies in the co- in the coffin? Like, why? Why? Mm. I don't understand. You know, it just sort of jettisoned to me, slightly the um, the. Yeah, that's that's even better. Emotion, the no feeling, sense. and the. Yeah, and right. also the it, first it, one it, was wrapped up so neatly with the whole concept mm-hmm. of the cemetery being moved. It was so neat and so believable. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess I guess it was also a better, like, clean metaphor. And I think in the sequel, they want to tell that cult story. But in the original, they were telling the story of erasure. You know, like, they moved the headstone so that a white family could take the land of a native family. And that's why it was easily wrapped up when, when those graves rose up. And, you know, we knew that the land was going to be taken back now. And in the sequel, that there's not like that same thing, but they just they're like, let's throw a deranged preacher at it, and that's like enough. <laughs> yeah, Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah, instead no, of actually continuing, like just like you said, because your solution of like why could he not also be a grave in the cemetery is so much better than being like no, underneath that, you guys, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 I know. I, I, I did find it, like, very strange. Very strange. <laughs> yeah, for very, as very much strange. as I enjoy watching it, I have way more problems with it than I would uh, the original, because I, I think the original is just so good. I definitely watch it more frequently. And, uh, you know, you're right. The sequel suffers from just not really having the same creative team uh, behind the scenes, even though it's got a great team in the scenes mm. oh yeah no definitely and I just think that it just lacked that sort of very subtle story and believability it just comes in full force what did you think about like the very I mean you were talking about um, obviously the movie 
was talking about crimes committed in America's past, especially relating to the Native American element. What do you think about them literally bringing it like full and front in this movie, in the sequel? I think that's that's an interesting thing to me too, because that's also another piece of like an 80s trope is that like in the 80s, we were doing a lot to be like, look, we're super sorry about that only on film. Like, we're not really doing a great job in our, like, laws or social policies or, like, doing anything to help here, you know, just like we did the last time um, with slavery. So don't worry, we're not doing anything real here. But we're going to start putting a lot of Native storylines into our movies across genres. And I guess they figured, you know, an area where we had done a disservice and sort of turned Natives into horror features, uh, let's turn them into horror saviors. And so I feel like there's something performative about it, which is kind of why it's so convoluted, is that it's like they have, they do cast a Native actor who I love, who's so endearing and who so clearly does have a great relationship with Carol Ann. Like they love each other and I love that. But I Mm -hmm. just don't think the film's actually as well-meaning as those two people's relationship is able to help me feel when I see it. Do you know what I mean? No, no. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with you completely agree with you um one of the biggest sort of um criticisms that is pointed at this film is mm-hmm. some obviously strange plot points like uh drinking the worm at the bottom of, of a beer um <laughs> but um there are some practical effects but i think it's more of the post-production that gets a lot of the rap especially in the last sort of act of the movie um mm-hmm. and we were talking about the practical effects of the first film do you think it was sort of a bit of a, a wrong move for them to go so far down the... I mean, it, it, it's stop-motion animation, isn't it? But it does look very, um, very dodgy. So <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it It's hard because I think they're... I don't know. It's so hard to look into effects of the past when they're not practical and try to imagine, like... <laughs> what people thought the first time because I really do think like do you think people when they were screening that film were like oh my god that looks so real man whoa yeah <laughs> and it's just us that are kind of like able to be like wow that's absolutely terrible because I feel like they they definitely look for more opportunities to do it as the franchise goes on and it is clear that like there there were spots they had to do it in the original so I don't know I don't know, but I, I definitely think they, they shouldn't have gone as far because that crawling around skeletal creature is horrifying. I wish I'd never seen it. <laughs> I wish it had never existed and I'd never seen it. I mean, that is probably one of the best moments of the movie, I think. That that um, that scene with that creature crawling around. That's the uh, the believable side of this movie, but when it goes into full you know, on the the other side, which is the tagline of the movie, isn't it? Poltergeist to the other side. It's uh, very when true. We actually get to, when we actually get to go to the other side, it's a bit like, oh, okay. It looks like a bit like Wallace and Gromit. You know what? That's a really good comparison because, yeah, they do sort of, they, they are, they do turn it into a little bit more of an adventure, but not really. Like, it, it's sort of really, really scary, and then now they're kind of like, no, we know what we got to do. Like, we'll figure it out, even though this stuff is still really dark. And, uh, you know, Tam Gina just shows up and they're like, 
it's the other side. And that is, that is weird. Um, that's not the yeah. same kind of thing like they were able to nail in the first one. Like we were talking about when it's like they think things are at rest. And so now we can have a final act. They just like march right along towards it. And they're like, no, no, no. We called it the other side. So no surprise here. Yeah, yeah. So those, um, I mean, the effect for the the crawling creature and the creature inside uh, the other side. Um, did you know that they were all they were all created by H.R. Um, Geiger, who di- who created the alien in the film Aliens? That so he he provided all the special effects designs, and Geiger created mm. several dev- uh, designs that were, uh, but only two of them unfortunately made it into the film, but. Some books mm. of his art report that Geiger was very unhappy with how his uh, designs were translated into the film, which I'm not surprised, yeah. to be fair. I'd be a little bit mm-hmm. like, what the hell is that? And the, um, <laughs> yeah, and the creature, the creature um, that was crawling on the floor was actually played by a stuntman called Noble Craig, who was a triple amputee. And he lost his legs and arm um, and his eye uh, serving in the Vietnam War. So they, it was an, actually an amputee who was playing that the part of that creature, um, which was I mean, really it's... effective, I think. <laughs> God, it's so effective. And, you know, just a, another wonderful layer about how movie making is always like, we're trying to do something good here by covering up something pretty gruesome. Right, like we're yeah. using that gruesome past for this really cool thing. Sorry about your life, man. <laughs> you know. What yeah, I mean? sorry about your legs. Do you mind like putting <laughs> sorry all about the prosthetics and everything on? Yeah, so the director covering in goo. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the director Brian Gibson. This was his like first and only horror film. Um, okay. He, he didn't. He you know, and he wouldn't direct another feature film for seven years after this. So. Um, and he's also the only wow. director in the Poltergeist trilogy who was British. So I have to apologize. <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, maybe that's why he felt the pressure to sort of follow the lead that they were setting in the original and just do his best to fit, you know, what the studio was telling him he had to fit in here and try to look like the original so he could just do his best here. And, you know, when you don't have somebody like Spielberg in between you at the studio, it's okay got to be a lot harder mm-hmm. that's it and, and the only member of the production team that returned from the original film was jerry goldsmith who scored the film so this that's is why true they were allowed do to love use... the score yeah let's talk about the score a little bit it's quite iconic isn't it like the la 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 mm-hmm. like the laring of the kids chorus i mean they love to use kids yep. in a um in a horror theme You've obviously got Nightmare mm-hmm. on Elm Street with the one, two, Freddy's coming for you. Um, and then mm-hmm. you've got this, you know, so having a child's chorus in a horror movie, very effective. What, what do you think about the score? It's one of my favorites. I often just have it in my head when I'm just doing errands and things like this, um, because I do like how it has uh, so many layers to it, even though it, it's pretty simple. You know, it has like a, a depth to it that I don't know, you know, how how composers do that, but, uh, you know, just as it's effective as, uh, like, a John Williams vibe, you know, like, I always love when Spielberg taps John Williams because he can do this, too, in my opinion, 
And I always forget that John Williams didn't do Poltergeist because it sounds like that to me. And I'm really yes. sorry for not for not knowing the correct composer, but it's just so good. It's a compliment, maybe, I hope. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, it is because, you know, and also Spielberg did spend a lot of time with John Williams, as did George Lucas. So some of the, the biggest themes are, you know, put to, to Williams. So I think that saying okay. that you thought that Williams did this score is actually, I think, comp- in my eyes anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 it's but, a good one, and uh, I, I think it, it's definitely part of what allows the second one to, at the very least, kind of keep you feeling another level of, like, it, it's still the same, guys, we're still the same stuff, we got the same people, we got the same music, we, you know, yeah. we're doing it. <laughs> exactly. But I think, it's you know, enough. it's iconic, you know, you know, you imagine, like, a Jaw. I mean, the Jaws sequels are pretty bad, but imagine Jaws... <laughs> the sequels without the music, like, it would be even worse. Like, oh, terrible. You know, you know, if they came up with a mm-hmm. different theme, like, it would just it would just strip away what made the film so successful, which was the music. You know, and mm-hmm. I think with Poltergeist as well, there's, like, some... It's really childlike, isn't it? Like, in the first film as well, it's, like... It's almost like there's, a, like, a, like, a musical box or you know, something mm-hmm. like that. It's very innocent and, and lovely. And then you get these horrific images that just sort of don't match up, but works perfectly. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think that's probably why it often finds its way into my head, because it's not like a traditional horror theme where it's, it is about the scare. It's more about that theme that sort of reminds you, here we are coming into this world where this family is going through this thing, and here we go. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. it's like a, it's the right amount of eerie hope uh, that you know is effective in a in a good horror movie. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Also, I want to say that um, the characters of well, Beatrice Strait, who played Doctor Leash in the first film, was asked to return mm-hmm. for Poltergeist Two, but she was uh, but she was ill and wasn't able to work at the time. And Richard oh, Lawson, who yeah, was asked to reprise the role of Ryan, uh, but his schedule clashed with um, filming uh, Under the Influence for MGM. So, um, unfortunately, (laughs) there were more characters that were meant to come back, but due to scheduling, Mm. um, it was an issue, unfortunately. Got it. Okay. I mean, that, that is the challenge when it comes to, you know, good sequels or sequels getting made or sequel, like it being worth making sequels, you know, is like the scheduling, because I think sometimes they're like, look, the name is enough. Who cares who's there? And then I think my favorite franchises are when there, there is more of a commitment to sort of keep telling a story if it's worth telling. And that sort of is the difference (laughs) between the second and the third. Right, like the second one, it it might have had a little bit more worth telling, and so we came back, we did it, but we have to wait quite a while, two more years for them to uh, decide. You know what? Let's we can get one. That's enough. We can do this. Yeah, we're gonna do this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, <laughs> and. It's also very like late 80s where we're really like bringing Chicago and New York into horror for some 
for some funny reason. Like instead of these things being in your backyard, now they're like in the cities. <laughs> I mean, Poltergeist Three. Okay, so, so let's let's delve deep into Poltergeist Three. Poltergeist Three um, is a massive odyssey because a <laughs> the, the parents aren't even around. Them. So um, yeah, how does it even exist is the best question to ask here. Um, also, how are the people who are in it in it? Like, how is Tom Skerritt here? How is Manthe Allen here? I know how Lara Flynn Boyle's here. She's got to start somewhere. But how are the leads to people who have, like, done some good work? What's going on? I mean... Yeah, I can see what you mean. Um, this film, like I said, I mean, I suppose the name Poltergeist carried some weight around at that time. You know, like the first film was very successful. The second film was mm-hmm. probably successful because this was around the time, uh, remember, of the emergence of VHS. So it was probably mm-hmm. a hit on that. And also, do you know what I mean? Like, they're probably just thinking, going to get a little bit of money for making this horror movie. They've been sold the fact <laughs> that, you know, Hero O'Rourke's going to be in it, you know, and um, I, I They're just trying their maybe, best. Maybe, maybe, I think maybe it was just an, uh, an in-between job for a lot of these people. Hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess, I guess, like, franchises were also, like, becoming a thing at the time that this, this franchise is being built. So maybe there's just, like, not a lot of rules, and they're just trying to figure out, like, what are the rules? Like, what do we do? Can we keep going without parents? Like, maybe they're designing a franchise as they're going. <laughs> do you know yeah. what I mean? Absolutely. And obviously, um, sadly, well, I say sadly, maybe wisely. I mean, obviously, there was reasons why the franchise didn't, sort of continue after this um, mm-hmm. but even even if those reasons hadn't occurred I do honestly believe that this would this would have been a good place to stop anyway mm-hmm. you know I can't see I really I can't see where they could have gone after this yeah yeah I mean like without being able to figure out how do you reimagine it where you're going to do a similar thing to the original, but you're you have you know subtly uh, sidelined the story or something, right? Like I guess the best way to continue would have to be not the remake they made because like it was fine or whatever, but not what I want. Um, oh God, <laughs> that like, was I the guess... worst. That was one of the worst. Oh, we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. Um, yeah, super disappointed with it. But I mean, what's weird is I I like love and hate Poltergeist 3. I hate it because it embarrasses me given how great the first one was and how, how much they tried so hard to keep it going the second. And then I love it because I'm like, oh, there's actually like a lot of interesting, fun things they tried to do here that like maybe if Caroline wasn't a part of it and somebody else was having to learn about what this thing is that that family could be just as compelling because there's a new family here for me to really try on. And so there's something interesting about that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think Carol Ann could have been involved in this film. I think that was a mistake. She's definitely doing 
such heavy lifting and the kind of heavy lifting that I agree with you, like we just didn't need. She does not need to be here trying to legitimize this franchise. It's legit. We have legitimized it with two films. Just do whatever you were going to try to do here. You know, you could be family members or whatever, but I like that there's something happening in Chicago because, you know, like in Chicago, we really ignored a very serious issue for a long time. So these poltergeists trying to stay true to that. Um, you know what I mean? They're yeah. Not here. Uh, she didn't need to, to totally create grave health conditions to make a film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my problem with Power Guys 3 is this. Okay, don't get me wrong. I love a high-rise movie. This could have been <laughs> Demons 2. You know, this could have yeah. been something really good and special. Mm-hmm. The problem is, mm-hmm. it's it's just a little bit predictable and boring. Yes. Yeah, of course. Do you know what is. I mean? Because because Carol Ann is there, right? Like, if Carol Ann wasn't there, then we'd have to figure out who is Carol Ann, you know, in quotes in this story, and why is what what happened to her happening here now? And because Carolyn is there, we're like, nope, something's going to happen to Carolyn. I wonder what will happen yeah. to Carolyn. <laughs> like, yeah. we, there's no room. There's no room to do anything else. And again, it's a bummer because I feel like the story doesn't call for her, but she's really enjoyable to watch in this one. She's having so much fun and it's so clear she has a personality now. You know, she isn't just a child. And that's, like, also part of, like, what's really sad about it, too, is you, know, you can see that she's a little bit sickly because she'd been having, like, some strange issues just in life before. And, uh, you know, she's playing, like, much younger than she really is. So that must have been kind of weird because she's right at the developmental age. And so there's just, it's just so interesting that that they needed her to be the legitimate factor but I guess that's also a testament to how meaningful she is, you know? Hmm. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. It is, it's a, a performance that she's putting in. She's part of this franchise. They invited her back. She did it. You know, um, the script, she probably didn't really sort of read the script, maybe. Maybe her parents <laughs> read it to her as a bedtime story. But, um, yeah, it's it, it, probably one of those not. films. Yeah, are you saying then that you would have preferred uh, Poltergeist 3 to be more along the lines of what they were doing um, with the Halloween franchise after Halloween 2 with Season of the Witch? Sort of keeping it, you know, within the sort of framework of the title, but then maybe going down a different avenue, like an anthology maybe, or did you, would you have liked them to have tied it back to like Carol Ann and her family story? <clears throat> I mean, I would have preferred it to sort of lean on how we'll expand the family tree without needing that main cast and try to keep it on the ground the way at least Halloween 4 is. Not Season of the Witch so much because I want, I like that there's something about how in the second one they're talking about, you know, in this family tree that like there is a clairvoyance pattern. And so like there's something to that that's happening in Poltergeist 3. But again, because Carol Ann is there, <laughs> we have to go through her. And it might yeah. have been interesting to see sort of like an extended family who is going to have their own experience, also trying to figure out like what do they believe about their family members' experience? 
because there's some good scenes where Scarrett's sort of being like, look, you know, there's probably no ghosts. Like, I think they were just scapegoating, you know, Carol Ann because of that terrible development he built. Because um, Scarrett is also an architect. So there's like some interesting things in uh, us getting to examine this family via their family members. But with Carol Ann there, they can only do so much without us having to just depend on Carol Ann. Yeah, so what, so what you're saying is the story would have been that the family members would, would be completely talking trash about the family and then have their own yeah. guys experience and be like, God damn, they were right. Well, essentially to sort of experience that, like, you can't, being ashamed of your family doesn't uh, exempt you from family curses, essentially. And I think, like, you know, that they're they're trying to to cover that thing here with Carol Ann present, but it might have been they might have been able to open something even newer without her, and we just won't know because they didn't. And that's why I agree with you that like I'm glad they didn't after. I think it's a good thing that they ended it here and they allowed this to sort of be the thing that rounds it out. Mm-hmm. No, I I. I agree with that. I don't really understand why Carolan was in uh, the picture in that film. It would have been a lot better if it had been a separate story, but related to the mm-hmm. story. Um, I can't remember. I, I think it was a blink and miss it mentioned, but why did they send her away in the first place? Something like to go to a gifted school or something, like a school for gifted children. Um, because essentially they're also doing that stupid 80s thing about turning uh, paranormal things into science. Um, there's like a lot of stupid movies in the 80s that are about like, ooh, I can well, go into dreams with laboratories. You know, like we were, that was like a big wave of horror at the time. And so this, well, this franchise the, buys the worst, right into it. The worst sequel of all time, I think, started that off. And we'll definitely talk about this, but The Exorcist 2 definitely started oh. the craze of trying to bring um, ghosts mm-hmm. and religion and science together and failed miserably. Oh. That is one it's film flat. I'm really not, look, I'm not looking forward to going back to having to watch for this, uh, for this series. I'm definitely not going to be that's, uh, that's, too pumped. That's so funny that you say that because when I was, you know, re-watching these films and preparing and just thinking about all the franchises I can't wait to talk about with you, I thought of The Exorcist and I was like, I hope we, like, don't do that one for a while because I hate this. I hope we don't do that to like, the last one that we do. Yes, that'll be the one yeah, that we'll always no, say can... we're going to do and then we'll try really hard not to do because even though it's, you know, integral or whatever to the genre, it's the sequel certainly isn't. No, it isn't. Yeah, no, I agree. No, I agree. So, <laughs> so Hevo Rourke and um, Zelda Rubenstein, who plays Tangia, were the only two actors to appear in all three of the Poltergeist movies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and obviously uh, this uh, film um, was released uh, a couple of months after, unfortunately, Heather O'Rourke passed away in February 1988, yeah. which was really sad. 
Yeah, yeah, really, really sad. And, you know, interesting, because I was I was reading into it again, because when I was a child, I remember that when I was watching these, all my parents were like telling me the lore, basically, like, oh, you know, what? like, everybody in this movie died. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute, not everybody in a movie can just die. What's going on? And there was this whole sort of like cultural piece of people wanting her death to be something like mystical or supernatural, you know, because she is a child dying and that's a really hard thing for everybody to swallow. Like it makes me really sad today and it happened a long time ago before I even was here. I think I was like, I was one, you know, I had no idea what was going on and it's, it must've been really hard for people who had fallen in love with her to accept that, you know, there was some sort of really freak health situation that, that happened to her and they did their best, but just, they, they couldn't do it. And it's just depressing that people are like, Ooh, there's probably a haunted reason, you know, let's talk about that instead. <laughs> yeah, you know no, I mean? absolutely. I mean, Craig T. Uh, Nilsson, who played Steve, like obviously the dad in the original, was approached to play uh, Steve <laughs> Breeling again, but declined, saying two was enough. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, um, just reading through my notes, sorry. But there was originally no. plans for him to return uh, for Poltergeist 4. Whilst Poltergeist 3 was being made, there were uh, plans being made up for Poltergeist, Poltergeist 4. Uh, but obviously okay. the death of Heather O'Rourke um, put the yeah, lid on that. Yeah, ended that. that. Um, and, okay. of, and the ensuing media scandal as well about the Poltergeist curse that overshadowed pretty much everything else about the movie. The reoccurring death of act- uh, the uh, reoccurring death of actors involved in the film series and the disappointing uh, box office returns of Poltergeist 3 uh, dissuaded mm-hmm. the producers from continuing the franchise that ultimately ended up just being three films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I feel like it was, it must have been so strange. And, you know, every time I rewatch some of these like classic franchises that I either was a baby for or not even born yet for, I, I always am so envious of what it must have been like when these were happening in real time. Like, what would it have been like for me as a horror fan to to be like, yeah, you know, they're making Poltergeist 4, like, three wraps. I can't wait to go see it. Like, oh, this is going to be the best part of my whole life. And then, like, lose someone and then, like, have to accept box office isn't there. And all in real time, just as, like, a fan, must have been so weird. It's kind of nice to be yeah. really far removed so that we can really just enjoy the the movie and the work and all of the quirks of, of these actors you know, outside of always immediately being reminded of, you know, the the whole media and cultural elements of their death. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. It must have been just one blow after another. Like, really bad. Yeah. Really sad as well. Mm-hmm. Did you know that the mm-hmm. the the um the name Carol Ann in Poltergeist 3 is said 121 mm-hmm. times? <laughs> I, I did lot. know that it was said, like, a million, because I definitely, uh, every time I watch it, I'm always like, get ready <laughs> to hear Carol Ann Carol more Ann, times than Carol anyone Ann, ever Carol should. Ann, Carol... <laughs> yeah, they're it's screaming almost like... constantly. Yeah, it's almost like they just want to remind people what the, of what they're watching. Carol Ann! <laughs> yeah. 
they're like this movie is yeah. a little bit more confusing than the other ones but I think as long as we sort of say Carol Ann maybe like every three four minutes people will really remember why they came and they're going to be happy because they love Carol Ann remember that's their favorite part that's why we're doing all of this yeah <laughs> you know what I mean they're doing it like really single-minded <laughs> yes yeah yeah absolutely so according I mean, to the I... films so go on Mm-hmm. Oh no no go ahead. So according according to the film's supervising dialogue editor, uh, Corey Burton, sorry mm-hmm. Corey Burton had to smoke uh, a pack of cigarettes before recording the lines as Henry Kane, in order to achieve the required raspberry quality, and then kept smoking throughout the recording sessions. And um, at the end, at the end credits, it explains that Reverend Kane was originally portrayed by Julian Beck, just to sort of, you know, nod to him, because obviously by this time he'd passed away, because he passed away shortly after Poltergeist 2. Um, yeah. I'm glad they brought that character back. You know I mean, if they brought back or brought in a different, like, entity, I don't think I would have enjoyed that very much. But the fact that they brought back Reverend Kane, for me, was the one thing I really did like about the movie. Bit of continuity. Yeah, I... I agree, because I think what they were trying to say in the second one was like, look, you know, th- it was about, uh, you know, remove, um, removing headstones and not bodies and kind of like not uh, accepting the reality of the past. But that past was really about something much darker than just just a, uh, some nice people who were buried somewhere. And that's something that should have followed Caroline around because it wanted her so badly in the sequel. So it makes a lot of sense that it, it should return with her if she's going to return. That is the entity that should want her the most, um, especially because all they really did was try to help people cross over. I mean, like they had people cross over, but, you know, those portals be open all the time. So people can come back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, the box office was pretty rubbish. For um, Guys 3. Poltergeist 4 was never really on the cards, I don't think. But uh, mm-hmm. can we talk about the oddity that is Poltergeist The Legacy, a TV show? Yes. Did you ever watch this? So, no, but I was deep diving into as much as I could get of it to understand it, and it was on for a long-ass time. It made 87 episodes, I believe, and people really liked it. It has a really high rating on IMDb and, like, amazing reviews, and I I never knew about it until I was kind of, like, re-watching these and just deep diving and, and getting really into all of them, and then I'm like, wait, what is this? Wait, wait. What an oddity. I mean, yeah. did, did you ever get to watch it? No, never seen an episode. But um, I, it was on my uh, radar. I did know about it. It has no connection whatsoever to the uh, the Poltergeist movies. But the legacy okay. is like a secret society that began many centuries ago to accumulate <laughs> knowledge and artifacts to help fight against the evil of the world. This particular legacy oh. team is set in San Francisco, in a castle-like house on Angel Island, Dr. Derek Rain heads up a team comprised of a psychiatrist, uh, Rachel Maybe. Corrigan, priest Philip C., ex-Naval Seal Nick Boyle, and researcher psychic Alex Moreau. Now, what they could have done, I think, is maybe 
instead of having like all those random characters, maybe it had some of the characters from the films that were part of the psychic team. You know, I mean, I, I know a lot of them. Yes. Maybe having their like relations to them, or maybe having them in a couple of episodes. That would that would have been cool. Yeah, I mean, so I think that that's what I wondered. Yeah, that's what I wondered was like, did they ever actually connect them, or was it really just like a totally side uh, connected thing that's just sort of like basically doing what season of the witches and kind of telling the the universe of like when poltergeists when people experience poltergeists um and it is kind of interesting too because it sounds sort of like what was really successful in the 90s that sort of like supernatural procedural of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and like you know Angel coming soon and X-Files like people really being into uh procedural ghost stories and and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and so maybe they were just like hey well we got your favorite ghost story and we'll do it cool with a doctor and a scientist and a soldier we'll do it you know librarian style (laughs) you know what i mean the priest oh yeah don't forget the priest gotta have a holy man of course (laughs) yeah uh it looks awful looking at some of the pictures and that even though it does have a good rating but I think that maybe might that might be more from the nostalgia side of it rather than it actually being any good. So I mean, people go, "Oh, I used yeah. to watch that as a kid," and like in their mind, mm-hmm. it's so good. But now it could probably be a little bit rubbish. But it ran from '96 to '99, which is later than than you'd think because that was well after the uh, the film series had finished. That was like six years after. So, but exactly. I do honestly believe, and and I I do I and. I think that this is pretty much the same as the Friday the 13th TV series, where there is absolutely no connection to the film franchise whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But if you plonk a name on it like this, then you're bound to get people interested in the ratings because people recognise the name. You know, they yep. watch the show and they go, this is, has absolutely nothing to do with uh, the Poltergeist franchise whatsoever. <laughs> but stick a name on it. You know, it sells. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, sadly, I, I won't be indulging. I won't be indulging in it. From what I've seen and from what I've read, it does have absolutely nothing to do with the uh, with TV, uh, with the movie, sorry. No, no, no. I, I was looking at it, too, and it, apparently it's, like, really hard to even find anywhere to watch it. So I think that, like, totally exempts us because... I don't know how I feel about when they do something like that, when they're like, oh, we're going to try out the idea of sort of doing this completely non-related, but using the name. But we're like not going to commit to that. We're going to low stakes phone it in with a procedural television show just to see how far we can Mm -hmm. pull you guys away from what this shit was actually about. (laughs) You know what I mean? It feels like a stupid experiment when they do that. And I don't like it. I'm not a fan. Yeah, but it ran for, like you said, 87 episodes. Was apparently quite Shocking. popular. Has absolutely no tentative... I'm looking now to see if there are any links um, to uh, the original series. No, there's nothing. I can't mm-hmm. see that there's, there's any links at all to the, uh, <laughs> to the series, to the films. Nothing. So, nope. oh, great. Well, there you go. A rip-off, as they say. An absolute rip-off. Yep. And it, sh- it, was, yep. it was on Showtime 
and the sci-fi mm. channel. Oh, the sci-fi channel. Do you remember the sci-fi channel? Of course, and I de- that this totally tracks for the sci-fi channel. Makes perfect sense. And you mm-hmm. know, it's important because the sci-fi channel definitely has uh, has its foot in the ground uh, when we're talking about some pioneering. So maybe not here, but maybe in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we've got um, just a couple of minutes. We've got a couple of messages. Did you want to quickly talk about the um, absolute pile of trash, which is the Poltergeist reboot of 2015? Sorry. Yes, yes. The one last thing I forgot to mention, but that I always was scared of as a child too in Poltergeist 3 is the doors and walls that are all mirrors. Like, Caroline's wall being a mirror where you can't see the door of is horrifying to me. Mm. And I just can't, I can't have not said that to you, so you can't not know that about me. You need to know this about me, that I'm afraid of mirrors that hide doors. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. the, the mirror it... sequences in Polgust 3 are amazing. Oh, so good, so good. But yeah, yeah, I definitely want to talk about the reboot remake because it it sucked. I was super disappointed in it. I, I still feel like the original holds up in a way that like doesn't really require being remade per se. So I kind of wish that they had tried to figure out how to reimagine better, I guess. Um, I like the actors. I was kind of excited for that, but just really disappointed and and like felt disrespected like you guys didn't do better real monday morning quarterback situation yeah yeah um what about you uh, i thought it was absolutely awful and i've just read something from the director which is even more shocking uh in a q and a uh, the director admitted mm-hmm. that he had, had never actually seen the original Poltergeist until filming was complete on the production. What? What yeah. the fuck, man? Like, what the actual <laughs> fuck? That's so, that's so weird and rude. And I feel like that is exactly, like, when I left, I was like, ew, that movie was annoying. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, like, annoyed yeah. me. It, it didn't was scare bad. me. It was really bad. Yeah, it seemed really easily predictable because it didn't even try to pay homage, in in my opinion. It just, oh, and it was the worst color. I hated the color. Yeah, yeah. They haven't even got no the same sense. character names. Bowen is Which is the like, what the hell? Family. I mean, what is this meant to be? Is it meant to be a remake? Is it meant to be like a completely separate story? I mean, from what I can remember, the story is pretty much note for note the same as the original Poltergeist, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's just different names. The TV. Yeah, different mm-hmm. names. They're like, oh, um, she's a brunette this time, so it's different. Um, <laughs> you know, oh like, God. it really was sort of a, a remake that copied, essentially, but didn't truly pay, like, pay homage at all and kind of, like, tried to cheat and say it was reimagining but just changing names like it was pretty much the same just really a lot harder to see because it was dark and they used way more computers it just was boring i love the fact that some someone has written on um on imbd um was this made for tv question mark (laughs) 
That's how bad it is. <laughs> Someone even thought they, they thought it was made for t- TV because it was. I mean that you know that for now is actually a compliment, but back then obviously it really is. Just like what the hell is this piece of shit? Literally, That's so true. Yeah, I yeah. I remember seeing the trailers and being like, "Look, I don't even know if I want to see that in the theater because, like, I'm just straight up mad, <laughs> you know." And then it was like, "All yeah. right." I'm going to try to go see what's going on here. But I went the second weekend just in case if there was like terrible reviews and I would be exempt. And I just remember leaving and being like, what was I even doing that for? What the hell was the point of that other than for me to have just paid to watch it? <laughs> you know, like I felt really cheated yeah. when I saw that in the theater. And it's an easy one that it should have been a TV movie because if we were like, oh, do you remember the sci-fi reboot? I think we'd be giving it more compliments. Yeah, but well, I will say that um, they they didn't even do a press screening of it. They they said no press screenings. So they knew they uh, knew it was, so, what yeah. was coming. <laughs> it was yeah, it was not screened in advance for the critics, so they they knew they knew it was a pile of rubbish. Really bad. That's you so can't funny. capture. Mm-hmm. You can only capture lightning in a bottle once, and I think they did that with the original Poltergeist. So true. Yep, and, and they've been chasing the lightning ever since. And uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in terms of horror sequels, maybe the first one is like, I don't know, could be in like fifth place because there's got to be four more that are better. But I think if we're ever going to do something where we figure out like what are some awards for like the best and worst, uh, this one has to be in, in contention for at least the second. The third, absolutely not. Um, not the reboot, absolutely oh. not. But the second yeah. one really gives it the old college try for sequels. So let's not sleep on it. Yes. Let's hold it in our back pocket. It's definitely a franchise where you count backwards for the best. So the reboot was the worst. Three was next. Two and then one was the best. Oh, perfect. You're definitely yep. counting backwards. Right then, should we hit these last couple of ditties? Absolutely, let's do it. Here we go. Horror movie sequels. Hmm. Um, I may be in the minority here, but I actually enjoyed uh, the second Halloween from the original franchise, not the uh, disaster that was the Rob Zombie reboot. Um, (laughs) What else for sequels? Um, The Friday the 13th sequels. I enjoyed those, obviously, because... uh, we got Jason Voorhees in the sequels instead of his mother, who was yep. the killer in the first movie. So, those ones I like. Oh, yes. And um, Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors. Um, uh-huh. I like that one, too. It's true. Those are good franchises. Absolutely. Um, go back and listen to last week's episode if you like the Halloween franchise, because we went into great depth uh, with pretty much all of those sequels. And, um, yeah, those other ones that you mentioned, I have no doubts we will be talking about again uh, very, very soon in the near, near future. So uh, do uh, watch out for our show. All right. So this is a horror sequel that I just saw recently. Um, Have you guys seen the sequel to the Amityville Horror? The very first one from the 70s. uh, It's called Amityville 2 The Possession. Um, I recently watched it for the first time. I had heard a lot of the sequels in this franchise really suck, but uh, it's pretty wild. I I enjoyed it. Um, I I think I might even like it better than the first one. Uh, It's definitely trying to be the exorcist like a lot. 
Um, but it definitely has the haunted house story as well um, for a lot of it, too. Uh, but yeah, I definitely recommend it. And if you haven't seen it, it's written by Tommy Lee Wallace, who directed Halloween three, which is another horror sequel that I love. And also the original it miniseries. Um, so yeah. Boom. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. Think about that. We should do the Amityville, uh, very, very soon. Shouldn't we? Um, we really should because definitely. I have a fun personal anecdote uh, about that franchise. I grew up very close to where they made that one. So even though I wasn't Ooh. around, I got I got some cool stories. Yeah. So at some point, we'll definitely do that. I'll have to put it on the list. Just to say, though, Tommy Lee Wallace doesn't put you off, does it? Even though he made Halloween 3. <laughs> nope, I'm in. Totally down. I like Halloween okay. 3 as a separate entity, you know? That's good then. That's okay. Right, last message. What did you guys think about the second Carrie movie? Ooh, I actually do like before, it. Yes, we have. You yeah, liked I guess it, didn't we you? yeah. I was gonna say we touched on it for sure, and it's not necessarily big enough for us to like sort of think of it as a franchise because like they're kind of separated. But it is interesting that people, you know, like because it has the same name, it's it it gets a little bit more play, and it is pretty good. So thanks for thanks for dropping that wreck. Yeah, I think we spoke about that on our episode of was it '90s Slashes? I think it might have been. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think it was the '90s Slashes. Someone brought it up then. Uh, yeah, if you're listening to us and you've really enjoyed it, go back and listen to some of the past episodes. We've done '90s Slashes. We've done sequels. Um, and obviously, Shani B does some great chats as well. Um, that's what um, sort of got me interested in starting this series with you. Shani B was your talks on uh, the faculty and funny games and loads mm-hmm. of others that you've done. So go back and follow Shani B and listen to some of uh, her previous chats as well, because they are literally fan film geekdom. That's what I say. <laughs> Absolute fan heaven. The highest praise, and I loved having this conversation today. I was so looking forward to talking about these films with you because I just feel like we get to geek out in a way that always really excites me. And so I can't wait to, yeah, to continue kind of like digging too. in in this way. And, you know, just because I have you, uh, I, I think we should maybe explore doing sort of like, uh, you know, like a, a canon special where we like talk about like the original greats, maybe the top five all time uh, ones everyone yeah. thinks of when they're talking about horror and we just kind of cover each of those. I, I want to plant that seed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's loads of other things that we could talk about in the future as well. That I'm really excited about. Um, also in the back of my mind, and I'm going to um, talk to you about this on Instagram, but I would like us to delve maybe into the world of um horror franchises that have transferred over into comics Ooh, i can get down with that i can absolutely get down with that yeah because i've got i've got a lot of them uh myself so i can send you some some over in file form um so yeah definitely like nightmare on elm streets had a comic friday the 13th had comics halloween's had comics so I think we're going to do a comic special at some point. That'd be quite interesting. 
Yes, I deal 100%. Um, again, I'm just so grateful for, you know, this app and its ability to connect us and being able to have these amazing conversations with you because today was exactly what I hoped it'd be. And uh, I'm yeah, just grateful for that. Bless you. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we'll talk behind the scenes about what, what the, uh, the next franchise is that we're going to talk about next week. But, uh, yeah. Thank you very much for joining us, listeners. And uh, thank you, Shani B. Don't have nightmares. I won't. You don't either. And I'll talk to you soon. Love you. Love you too. Speak to you very soon, lovely. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye.